Folks, Satan's primary agenda in the world is religion. False religion to keep people from the truth of the gospel. And once they're in the gospel, distorting the faith in order to confuse and deceive and mislead and to thwart. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hello, I'm Bill Wright. On today's program, Tom continues in our current series titled, The Church According to Jesus. The New Testament writers make it clear that when we come to faith in Christ, we enter the kingdom as newborns. We become like spiritual infants. In 1 John chapter 2, John lays out a progression of spiritual growth. Little children, young men, and spiritual fathers. That is the progression that believers take. But in what way are immature believers like children? Why does John use that analogy? And what does that have to do with building the church? Let's join our teacher now to find out on The Word Unleashed. We find ourselves in Ephesians chapter 4 in a section on preserving the unity of the church. We're looking at the section that begins in verse 7 of chapter 4 and runs down through verse 16. The main point of this section is that Christ has a plan for his church. And when Christians work together, carrying out that plan, it encourages and stimulates unity in the church. It preserves the unity. That's what the overall paragraph is about. The goal of the plan is that we would have unity in doctrine, that is the fundamental doctrines of the Christian faith, that we would have unity in our devotion to Jesus Christ, and that we would have unity in our likeness to Jesus Christ. And we all will reach that goal, but only in perfection when we die or when Christ returns. Until then, the plan is in place. This morning, I want us to continue our way through this passage, and we're going to be faced with the practical implications of Christ's plan. The practical implications of Christ's plan, and it begins in verse 14 and runs down through verse 16. Let me read this last part of this section to you. Here are the practical implications of Christ's plan for His church. Verse 14, as a result, We are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Now, there are two important points in that section that I just read for you that are not immediately evident in our English translations. In particular, the NIS here, and probably in a number of other translations, it looks like a new sentence begins in verse 14. But in the Greek text, verse 14 is part of a larger sentence that begins back in verse 11 with the words, and he gave. 
The other important thing to note is that the words that begin verse 14, as a result, you can see there's a little uh, footnote there in the NAS, and if you look over in the margin, it's literally, so that we will no longer be. It's often used, this in order that or so that, is often used to speak of the response that God wants to see from us. So putting all of that together, let me show you how we could literally translate this section. If you go back to verse 11, and he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastor teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ, now skip down to verse 14, so that, are in order that, we should no longer be children. Our Lord intends that his plan for the church change us, that it grow us up. And while these verses, verses 14 through 16, are not in the form of a command, practically, in the flow of Paul's thought, that is their essence. This is something we are to do. In verses 14 to 16, we discover the practical implications of Christ's plan for his church. Now, the implications are both individual for each of us, and the implications are corporate for us as a whole, the entire church. This morning, I just want us to look at the individual implications of Christ's plan. And we see the individual implications in verses 14 and 15. These two verses are addressed, as it were, to each of us as individual Christians. As a result, Paul says, or in order that, he gave these gifted men, he put this plan in place in order that we should no longer be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. Now, when we get to verse 16 next week, we'll discover that it's about the church corporately, the entire church. But these two verses are about us as individuals, about each of us and our growth in Jesus Christ. And buried in these two verses are several clear and compelling implications of Christ's plan on our own individual spiritual development. There are at least four here, and we're going to look at several of them this morning at least four implications about our own individual spiritual development and growth. The first implication that I want you to see is this. Every Christian begins the Christian life as a spiritual infant. Every Christian begins the Christian life as a spiritual infant. Now, that may seem obvious, but I think when we're done, you'll see that we don't often think of the implications of this. But it's true. Paul says that all Christians are at one time children. In fact, he even includes himself. He says that we all should no longer be children. We are no longer to be children. The Greek word that's used of children here is used in the scriptures of both infants, physical infants, those newborn, toddlers, all the way up to children to the age of puberty. So we're talking about children, 
who have not yet reached physical maturity. And this word describes not only physical age, but when it's used even of literal children, it's talking about the things that come with that age, ignorance, gullibility, inexperience. There's sort of a collection of attributes that belong to that age. And Paul likes to use this analogy of children as one of spiritual immaturity. Now, we, under, we need to understand that this is a reality. What did Jesus say to Nicodemus? You remember in John chapter 3? In John 3, this leader of the Jews, this teacher, comes to Jesus by night, and he doesn't ask a question that Jesus answers. Jesus, or let me put it differently, Jesus answers a question that he didn't ask, but that he was thinking. And he says this to him, listen, if you want to get into God's kingdom, you need to be born again. You must be born spiritually. You must come into the kingdom as a baby, as it were. Becoming a Christian is like being born spiritually. When someone comes to Christ, that person is just beginning life. You see this in a number of places in the New Testament. You remember the famous passage in 1 Corinthians 3 where Paul is chastising the Corinthians, telling them they ought to be beyond spiritual infancy, but they're not. 1 Corinthians 3, and I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now you are not yet able. He's, he's chastising them. He's saying, this is ridiculous. You ought to be beyond your spiritual infancy now. But the implication is that we all come into the Christian life and experience as what? As infants, spiritual infants. The same image Peter uses in 1 Peter chapter 1. He talks about us being born again, verse 23 of 1 Peter 1. You've been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. So you've had this new birth. You've just come to life. Therefore, chapter 2, verse 2, like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word so that you may grow in respect to salvation. The New Testament writers make it clear that when we come to faith in Christ, we enter the kingdom as newborns. We become like spiritual infants. In 1 John chapter 2, John lays out a progression of spiritual growth, and he talks about the little children, and then the young men, and then the spiritual fathers. That is the progression that we all take. Understand that when you became a Christian, whenever that was, you entered into the spiritual world as a spiritual newborn. But in what way are immature believers like children? Why does he use that analogy? In what way are immature believers like children? What is the point of similarity? That brings us to a second implication here of Christ's plan on our individual spiritual growth. Not only is every Christian beginning the Christian life as a spiritual infant, but secondly, every immature Christian, every immature Christian shares two primary characteristics of children. 
Every, every immature Christian, that is every Christian who is either from the state of newborn up through adulthood, shares certain characteristics with physical children. And that's why the analogy is used. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul compares immature believers to children because both physically immature people and spiritually immature people share two common characteristics. They are personally unstable and they are easily deceived. Personally unstable and easily deceived. Notice, first of all, they are personally unstable. And his description of this, by the way, is graphic. Look at verse 14 of Ephesians 4. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves. Tossed here and there by waves. Being thrown around back and forth by the waves of the sea. The image is that of a small boat that has come into a storm and is being violently tossed back and forth by the tempestuous sea. Now, I don't know about you, but I've never been on a small boat in that kind of circumstance. The closest I've come is on a massive cruise ship, and that was close enough. When I was at Grace to You, I was responsible for the annual Grace to You listener trip. And several years, we sponsored cruises, and people would come from all over the country and even the world, join with us, have their vacation, but enjoy some good Bible teaching, and we would get to know them and they us. And one year that we went to Alaska, we came out of the, the normal passage there, the inside passage, and we hit the open waters of the Pacific, and we found ourselves in the middle of a storm. And it was a pretty good storm. It was incredibly windy, and the waves, we were told by the captain, were between 25 and 35 feet. Now, just to put that in perspective, if you stand outside this worship center and look up at the roof line, that's 24 feet. So that was the baseline of the waves, of, of the, the bottom of the crest of the waves, and the, the highest waves approached 10 feet higher than that. Even in that massive ship, we were tossed around pretty good. Most people on board got seasick. In fact, there were only uh, one night, there were only about 30% of the passengers who could actually physically go to the dining room and attend dinner, which really made it a good time for those of us who had iron stomachs and were able to enjoy. I had a feast that night. I felt sorry for my wife. She was back in the room, but, but um, we enjoyed dinner the few of us that were able to make it. Imagine what it would be like, though, to encounter those same kinds of seas in a small first-century boat. You would have absolutely no control. You would be completely at the mercy of the wind and the waves, carried wherever they took you. Paul knew what that was like, didn't he? As he writes this letter to the church in Ephesus, he sits in a Roman incarceration, probably his own rented quarters, according to the end of the book of Acts, his own rented quarters, but under the control of Rome, accompanied by a Roman guard. But he writes this letter having experienced this very phenomenon he describes here. Because remember, the end of the book of Acts tells us how he got to Rome. You remember the shipwreck? 
You remember that for 14 days in that little ship, they were carried along on the Mediterranean by this violent storm. They threw everything overboard. Everybody's sick. They didn't eat for 14 days. Pitched everywhere. And when Paul wanted to describe spiritual immaturity, he could think of no better picture than a boat that's tossed around the ocean by the waves. That's exactly how unstable immature believers are. They are easily thrown around and confused by various outside influences. Martin Lloyd-Jones gives a very insightful little list of this instability and what it looks like, both for physical children and spiritual children. Listen to his little list. He says, first of all, they're fickle. This instability means they're fickle. In a moment, they can change from laughter to crying. You ever experienced that with your kids? From loving something to hating something. They're in a constant state of change. One of the greatest... uh, test of wills I ever had with one of my daughters was when in one day's time she went from loving cheese that we told her to eat for breakfast to hating it and making that a test of wills. Children are like that. They are impulsive. Their instability not only means they're fickle, but they're impulsive. They lack self-control. They're driven by their feelings and their moods. Lloyd-Jones goes on to say they're They're also prone to react excessively to what happens. They either love it or they hate it. There's no middle ground. A toy breaks and it's the end of their little world. They're like the waves in a constant state of agitation. First this way and then the other. They hold their views, Lloyd-Jones says, violently, and yet they tend to change from one extreme to the other. They can be dogmatic about this position, this moment, easily convinced of another position, and suddenly just as dogmatic about the other position they're now holding. That's true of physical children. It's true of the spiritually immature as well. So as spiritual children then, we are unstable. We are personally unstable carried around by the waves, easily susceptible to outside influences, open to constant, impulsive, fickle change. There's another characteristic that physical children and spiritually immature people share. Not only is there this personal instability, but they are easily deceived, easily deceived. Notice verse 14 again. He says, not only are they tossed here and there by waves, they are also carried about by every wind of doctrine. Doctrine is literally the Greek word for teaching. Carried about by every wind of teaching. Because they lack the knowledge of the faith, their entire direction in the Christian life is changed by the next gust of wind, the next teaching to which they are exposed. It might be their own idea, but more often it comes from someone else's teaching. It might be just some ridiculous interpretation of the Scripture, but more often it's outright error. The goal, as we found last week, is to arrive at the unity of the faith, united in the fundamentals of the faith. But there are many waves that will carry you far away from that destination. 
Shortly after I moved to Texas, I had a man out to give me a bid on some work that I needed done at my house. And the best I could tell from my conversation with him, this man was in Christ. But as I got to talking with him, he kept quoting all of these false teachers. He kept quoting Ken Copeland and Kenneth Hagin, and he mentioned several others. And I did my best to sort of redirect him back to the Scripture. But it was clear to me that he was being tossed here and there, and he was being carried about by every wind of teaching. The latest guy he heard on the radio tossed him here and brought him over here in a new direction, and then he'd hear this new teaching, and it would take him this direction. He was easily deceived, and that's true of all those who are spiritually mature. What makes children, both physical children and spiritual children, children easy to deceive well again lloyd jones has a very helpful and thought-provoking little list under this issue of easy to deceive he says here's why children are easy to deceive they are proud and self-assured they overestimate their own knowledge and ability they're ignorant this is why a child can be so easily deceived you talk about taking easy as taking candy from a baby It's because they lack a knowledge of the world and how it works. There's this basic ignorance. They have a natural dislike of being taught. They're drawn to the new and the novel. You see, children have inherently no real sense of value. They have to be taught value. They are typically drawn to a shiny penny rather than a dulled silver dollar because it's new and it's exciting and it's shiny. Lloyd-Jones says both physical children and immature Christians enjoy entertainment and excitement. That's why our children are sometimes excited to see their parents leave or to see that doting relative come because that doting relative is a lot more fun, a lot more entertaining, a lot more enjoyable. The same thing can be true for the spiritually immature. And Lloyd-Jones' last little point in his list is that both physically immature and spiritually immature people are susceptible to showmanship. You know, when I read this, I thought Lloyd-Jones was a prophet ahead of his time. Listen, Listen to this and see if this doesn't describe so much of the church today. He says, the bigger the show the more the child is likely to believe it because he lacks knowledge and the ability to discriminate and to understand. He tends to be seduced by the spectacular, the big, the gaudy, anything which is done in a self-confident manner. Showmanship always appeals to children. That's true physically, and it's true of the spiritually immature as well. Where do these waves of teaching, these winds of doctrine come from? Well, sometimes they may come from well-meaning but confused Christian leaders. Trends like the prayer of Jabez or wild at heart or whatever the latest thing is, the latest fad. If you've been a Christian for a while, and if you've grown up in Christ, you've seen that there are these trends and fads that come and go in Christianity. Some are more harmful than others, but you've learned to just ignore them because you've become stable in what you believe, so you're really unaffected by them. 
You realize they'll be here today, they'll promise this great change, and they'll be gone tomorrow, and nobody will even remember after a couple of years. But immature believers are redirected by every new teaching, every new trend. They uncritically accept whatever is shared with them. So sometimes, well-meaning Christians can be the cause of this instability. But here in Ephesians 4, Paul is not concerned with those influences that come from well-meaning Christians. He's concerned about a particular destabilizing force, false teaching that comes from false teachers. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part seven of his series, The Church According to Jesus. Tom will have part eight for you on our next program. Join us then. Well, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And be sure to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do so by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed. Exalting God's glory explaining God's truth.